Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to be taking a a look at Psalm 57, and this is a psalm that deals with David yet again. Now, if you know anything about David at this point, he's pretty much a man of many troubles, right? He is constantly being hunted down by people that want to kill him. And so this psalm is just a reflection out of much the same scenario where Saul is persecuting David. Saul is hunting him down, and so in the superscription, we find that he is hiding from Saul in the cave, and it's likely the the cave of Adullam. Uh, But the idea is that, again, David's life is on the line. Now, the superscription tells us that this, again, is set to al Shef, which just simply means do not destroy. Now, we don't know musically what that means, but it is kind of a rather wonderful way of actually uh, framing this, isn't it? You have a man who's being hunted down and persecuted for his life, and so the arrangement is set to do not destroy for very obvious reasons. David's life is on the line. He does not want to die. But as you look to the structure of this psalm and throughout it, you actually see very many wonderfully poetic things that are just plain beautiful without any better way to put it. In verse 1, you have that common idea that's all throughout the Old Testament, but you have God being referred to as one whom he will take refuge in under the shadow of his wings, right? You see that at the end of verse 1. In verses 3 and 8, you find that there's personification going on, meaning that David is looking at God's loving kindness and his faithfulness, or his truth, rather, and he's saying that they will literally go forth in body and in rather than just some nebulous idea. And then he's also looking at different things like the musical instruments and even the dawn, of, or the dawn itself and giving that a personified voice as he's saying, all of creation, in other words, must rise to praise this one who is worthy. But the most important one is found in verses 5 and 11. And if you look down, you'll see that that's the refrain of this song. And what it deals with, ultimately, is that David is crying out for God to be glorified in the heavens and on earth. He uses what's called a merism, and a merism is just simply taking two different points, joining them together to deal with the context of the whole. And so he's saying, as disparate as the heavens and the earth may be, together all of creation should rise and praise this one who is to be glorified. Now, the reason that David is asking for this, and we'll touch on this more when we actually get there later in the psalm, but that he recognizes that as God manifests his glory on earth, as it is in heaven, there's no more trouble, no more sin, no more death. In other words, all will worship God and all will be right. Everything will be in harmony. And yet he's not in that point, is he? Which is obviously why he's writing this psalm. But every last one of you here today also experience that same reality, do you not? We live in a world that is dominated by pain, suffering, and ultimately, one day we will face death, that great inscrutable enemy. And so the reality of what I will speak to today is that every last one of you will suffer. That's just how this life works. You will suffer. 
And if you are not suffering now, the only difference between you and a person who is suffering is time. That's it. And so the question is, what do we do when times of trouble come? Where do we turn? How do we deal with those things, and why do we navigate it in that way? Well, that's what our psalm is actually aiming to teach us today, because David, again, is in an incredibly troubled time, emotionally, spiritually, but also physically, and so he looks to God himself to see 10 ways he ought to respond in times of trouble. And so with that in mind, that's exactly what I want to show you today as we look through this text. So starting in verse 1 of Psalm 57, please follow along with me. The first way we are to respond in times of trouble is that we go to God for grace, right? Immediately, that's how we are to respond. Notice what he says here in verse 1. He starts with this. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. Now, remember, David sees that he's got enemies on every single side. He knows that Saul is looking to kill him. And instead of looking at his circumstances, though, what does he do? But look directly to his creator and ask for grace. Now, that idea of grace, again, is just this idea that there is undeserved favor and mercy that God gives towards his children. It's that precious care God has towards his uh, children, if you will, where he looks on them and he, he gives them compassion. He gives them kindness. He does not deal with them as they deserve, right? If every last one of you and I got what we deserved, what would it be but that we would find ourselves in hell under the wrath and judgment of God? And yet grace is giving us the opposite of that. It's giving us that which we do not deserve. But it also shows us that one of the ways God's grace is manifest to his people or given to his people is when he rescues them from harm. And that's what David is going to ask for in this psalm. That's what he needs. Now, behind his plea is not this presumptuous attitude as if he thinks he's owed grace, that he's deserved it in some manner, but it's actually urgent, Right? He has men trying to kill him, and so his request is urgent, but it's all born out of the character and nature of who God is. So God has revealed himself to be a gracious God. He has revealed himself to be a kind and compassionate God, one who is steadfast in his love. And David, David simply recognizes that apart from this God who is the gracious God, there is no such thing that I will get as grace. It's just as simple as that. There's no relief from his troubles. Now, he cries out two times here, and the reason for it is not that it's this vain, repetitious prayer that's like some of the ones we find condemned in the New Testament by Christ. The the idea is that he's really stressing the urgency of his request. Whenever you have something in the Hebrew where it's repeated like this, especially two words or two phrases directly one right after another, it's emphasizing them to the nth degree. And so that's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, in essence, if God does not act, I will die. God must rescue me or I will die. And yet behind this, and this is what I really don't want any of you to miss, is behind his urgent plea, behind his repetition, is that he goes to the one he trusts. Right? I mean, that's a radically simple thing that you and I will just automatically often overlook in the midst of reading the psalm like this. David goes to the one he trusts. He knows that this is the God over all creation. He knows that this God loves him, has compassion and grace towards him. And so he cries out to him. And so our first response that we learn from this reality is that our own response in times of trouble ought to be that we seek God for his grace, 
for his undeserved favor. And we cry out to him for that simply because we don't deserve it. It's not owed to us, but he is one who loves to dispense grace upon grace to his children. He is a compassionate God, right? It's part and parcel to his very nature or character. And because he is a gracious God, we know that we can come to him for grace. That's the idea out of this. In our time of need, we can ask him for help and grace because he actually delights to give that to those who are his children. Whatever troubles we face, whatever evil days that lay ahead, the reality is that we have a God who shows compassion. And some of you just don't get this. You think of God as this one who wags his finger from the heavens towards you, that he's just listing these set of rules, but you have never yet once considered that the very fullness of his grace has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? That, that is the essence of the gospel, that God is gracious, is it not? God is the one who, being a gracious God, offers forgiveness for sins, that which we do not deserve, right? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that which we did not do. In every single manner, he is the God who is kind to those who are sinners. And my point in this is that if you actually understand the gospel, if you understand the richness of God's mercy towards his children, that if he gave us grace on our day of most desperate need by saving us, then what prevents you from seeking his grace in far lesser things? And my point in that is not to deny that you have hard times. My point in that is not to say that your times mean nothing. My point in that is to say that if God can do the impossible in one sense, that he could send his son to live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and raise from the dead all that you might be forgiven of a debt that you could not pay, but that you substantially owed in abundance, how much more so, how much more so can he give you grace in times of trouble? The reason that we can go to God for grace ultimately is only if we make him our refuge, though. Only if he is our refuge. And that's the very next point that we're going to see here. That's what David does again in Psalm 57. Look back at verse 1 with me. I want you to see this. If you don't have your Bibles out, please take them out and follow. He says, For my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So notice where his soul takes refuge. It's not in the things of this life. It's in God alone. Why? Because God himself is his refuge. He is the one who will protect him on that day. He recognizes in all of life and death, he is utterly dependent on this one true God. It's not that David merely gets refuge on this day, but that in every other single day of his life, David has found refuge and strength in God. In light of this, he knows that in the midst of this time, he can go to God for grace. He can safely retreat to the arms of his Savior. The reason is, again, not only because God is the one who gives grace in our time of need, but that he is the one who protects his children. He protects them. And so David just simply says, I will place myself under the care and protection of God until when? Until I grow tired? Until it doesn't work anymore? No, until the day destruction passes by, until it's done, until it's over. But notice how he says this. It's really, it's, 
rather beautiful. It shows just how safe and secure God is to his people. And in the shadow of your wings, verse 1, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. And he shows that there's a sort of tender care to our Heavenly Father. That much like a mother hen has towards her chicks, that God is the one who takes his children under his wings and protects them and cares for them. And the point is incredibly simple, but again, one we ought not pass over. God is the one who cares for his people. God is the one who protects them. God is the one who will take them under the shelter of his wings and save them and rescue them from harm. It's the same description he gave to the Israelites when he took them out of Egypt. The idea, again, goes back to this reality that you can actually find protection and comfort and care under the shelter of your God. He is placing his faith in the very same God he knows has been a refuge to his people throughout all of history. But the, the word for destruction here also gives a depiction of this idea that there is this utterly violent and ruinous storm that God is protecting him from. The storm, though, will pass. It will pass until destruction passes by and implies that it will be done one day. One day soon, he knows his troubles will be no more. But most importantly, beloved, is that in the midst of his troubles, he is safe and secure with his God. In the midst of that time of evil, David could see God as a shelter from the storm. David could see that God has put him under the shelter of his wings and that nothing can harm him unless God actually allows for that to happen. But he trusts God. He trusts him. In much the same way, beloved, our response in times of trouble should always and ever be to take refuge in our God. The reason for this is that there's ultimately no other source of comfort or hope or stability that you can find in this life. Nothing else can rescue you. And I know some of you have tried that. Some of you are trying it right now. You're trying to find anything and everything else that can actually help you. But you know, at best, it's just a placebo. Temporary satisfaction might come from your money. But that'll dry up one day. You might find confidence in your own strength, your youthfulness. That'll go away. One day your strength will disappear from you, your mind will slip, and your body will become frail as you go back to the dirt from which you came. The reality is that all of life is a vapor. But God himself is a sure refuge. More than that, he sees us through to the very end. And when you make him your refuge, you actually find comfort. You actually find care. You find joy. You find peace. You find stability. Not because all of your trials have gone away. Not because he's some sort of magic genie that gives you everything that you think you ought to have, but because God gives you peace in the midst of that. And he promises to keep you safe until the day of redemption. His tender mercy is always on display and he ensures that no harm will utterly undo you. And that's the point here. That in the midst of the storm, as everything howls and the rain pelts, it is pelting and beating against the wings of God. You are safe under the shelter of those wings. 
That's the point. When you make God your refuge, it ensures one day also that your troubles will just simply be no more. Is that not the greatest hope of the Christian? This life, though it is filled with various troubles and various evils, it's like everything else. It's temporary. It has no real staying power. You may find that your sufferings are many. You may find that evil people surround you continually. They wish your harm and actually do everything they can to make your life end in harm. Yet they cannot follow you into the next life. They cannot take away the promises of God towards you. Sin, death, and Satan will one day be no more, and there will never, ever, ever be a time where that afflicts you again if you are safe under the shelter of his wings. If you are not, if you are not safe under his wings, then, beloved, you will find him to be a terrifying God. But that's not where David's at. That's where his enemies are at. That's why he needs rescue. The point is, again, when times of trouble come, take refuge in God because he is a place of safety. He is our retreat from the storm. And the next response we are to have in times of trouble is in verse 2. It comes right off the cuffs of this one. We are to call upon God for rescue. It says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Right, God most high, that title is designated or used to just showcase how supremely sovereign God is above every single thing in all of creation. He says, this is not only God, this is the God most high, the God above every bit of creation. And yet this is not merely a theological reality for him that corresponds to him seeing God orchestrates every detail in life. He says, no, this is the God who benefits his people. This is the sovereign God above all things that cares and loves his children. This is my refuge. This is the one I will pray to in times of trouble. Now, he gives a parallel description here, if you continue to look down, that this God who is the God most high is also the one who accomplishes all things for me, or as some of your translations might put it, he who fulfills his purposes for me, or purpose. The point is that God, again, is the ultimate sovereign one above every bit of creation, but that he's able to work out the problems that David has. Right? David has a purpose that's bound up in being pledged to be king. Well, God has to work that out for that to happen, does it not? Well, the idea, though, is that you see the sovereignty of God is at play in such a way that he is now bringing about those purposes for David. He is going to do so. Nothing will prevent him from doing so. And this is what provides him for comfort or with much comfort in the midst of his trials. He says, ultimately, I know that God has to sort things out. And I know that God can sort it out. He is the sovereign, most high. He is the one in whom I trust. He is able to save. No matter how ferocious my enemies might be, no matter how bleak the circumstances might look, it doesn't matter. What I want you to see from this is that no matter how hopeless things may seem, in the same manner, our response in times of trouble is always to call upon God for rescue. Why? He's the God who saves, beloved. 
He is the sovereign one. He's the one who sees every bit of our trouble, and on the day of our harm, he is able to rescue. This is not, again, some mere theological abstract where you can say, yes, I appreciate the sovereignty of God. I know God is over all things. For the one who cherishes this reality, the one who really believes it, is this not a balm to your soul? Where you recognize that though everything around you is just going wrong at all times, God is in control. And to you, you look at that and you're like, this is a wonderful thing because I know this is a God who loves me in Jesus Christ. This is a God who promises to save me and preserve me and care for me all the days of my life. He is near to me. He knows my pain and suffering and he does not deny it. Even if your life is filled with trouble for the rest of your days, you can still bank on the hope that God is the sovereign one who is in control of every minute detail and he is the one who genuinely cares for his people. And yet I know for some of you, you see a doctrine like this and you think, I want nothing to do with that type of God. If he's in control of all things, why has my life worked out the way it has? It's a fatalistic thing. You don't see it as anything that binds God's care and his mercy and protection together. You look at it and you're like, one way or another, if God's sovereign, then everything will be accomplished, won't it? It doesn't really matter what I do. I might as well do A, B, and C. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. You ask the question, if God is so sovereign, why should I pray? If God is sovereign, why would you not? If God is sovereign, why would you not? He is the one who is actually able to do something about it, and you are not. It's one of the best reasons you should pray. And you should pray all the more earnestly about it. And yet one of the things we struggle with most as Christians is prayer, isn't it? One of the things, the last things that you would want to do as an unbeliever is pray, isn't it? If I had to put money on it, I think it's all bound up in the reality that even though we would say completely opposite, our lack of prayer is ultimately born out of this arrogant assumption that we don't need God as much as we actually do. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Our American individualism kicks in and we think we got it. We'll just coast on through. Whatever happens will happen. Que sera, sera. But times of trouble have a wonderful way of revealing what it is we actually believe and actually cherish and actually hope in, don't they? And I think we don't often like what's revealed. The point I'm making is that you can look at the sovereignty of God as a doctrine, but if it never leads you to a deeper trust and love and reliance upon this God who is the sovereign one, big whoop. It's a theological term, by the way, big whoop. My point is the true trials, things you simply cannot control, If you respond to them properly, biblically, you will always come back to your God and ask him to rescue you. You will naturally default there. And the reason you will do so is because he is the one who can actually do it. He's the one who can do it. And whether that happens in this life or the next life, you actually 
have the audacity, the craziness to believe that he will because the scriptures promise it. And for you, that's enough. You've seen him been faithful, even though you've had heartache and hardship. And I know many of you have had much, much heartache. You know that God is faithful. But you can only understand that if you've made God your refuge. It, it just simply won't make a lick of sense any other way. And yet you will also see that if you make God your refuge, he gives you sufficient grace and truth in the midst of your troubles. That's the next point we now see in verse 3. So look down with me yet again. He says, he, being God, will send from heaven and save me. So see that confidence there. He will save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. So David is so confident that God has heard his prayers and that God will actually make good on them that he just says he will save me, right? He'll send from heaven to do so. He knows that God will ultimately look upon these guys that are persecuting him and he's going to pour out his judgment and his wrath. That's how it's going to come. That's what he's asking for. This is the relief he's asking for, or rather the grace. This is the loving kindness he's asking for. This is also the truth he's asking for. This is all bound up in who God promises to be against the evildoer. And so David is looking at that and he's saying, God, would you do it? Send forth from heaven and help. We'll see exactly how God will bring about that vengeance when we get to verse 6. But the idea for now is sufficient to just understand that, as he says, he reproaches him who tramples on me. What he's going to do is just flip the tables. He's going to bring them to open shame. He'll bring them to reproach, in other words. So these men who are trampling all over me will be brought to shame. And then, again, how he will do that is by sending forth his loving kindness, or his chesed, that's a Hebrew term, and his truth. Now, that word loving kindness speaks to this idea that God is, again, filled with grace upon grace. He is utterly faithful to his promises. He cannot falter and will not falter. And again, I, the, it goes all the way back to the old covenant where God's unfailing covenant love towards his people literally cannot be undone. It cannot be thwarted. And so he looks at that and he says, grace upon grace, God will send his covenant faithfulness, his love toward me from heaven. It will not fail. And that word for truth, he says, is another word for steadfastness. Rather, God cannot tell a lie. So you see how the two of these are just dovetailing off of one another. He's looking at it and saying, God is always faithful and God is always true. He is not like men. Right In the midst of his troubles, he's able to look at it and say, God is faithful to all his promises, and that means that God will not fail. God will save me. And he will save me, not because I'm somehow worthy of it, but because God is faithful and true. And yet the unique thing that David says that God will do is he will send forth this faithfulness and truth from heaven, the realm of heaven itself, to actually save him. And this is what David sees again as that grace that he asked for in verse 1. So what this tells us is much in the same light that our own response in times of trouble is to remember in the midst of calamity that God gives sufficient grace, right? The reason I can say this is that David's looking at all of this under the auspices of God's grace and he's saying, God will actually send these things forth from heaven towards me to save me. He will be gracious. The same idea applies in one sense as you, as you look at it and say, I know that God can supply me the grace and the truth to get through our times of trouble. 
Right? I, I need not flee and go elsewhere. God's promises are always faithful and always true. He cannot fail. He will not pull them back or renege on them. They are bound by his character. And he cannot lie. And he does not change. In times of trouble, or rather trouble, he will be to us our strength. He'll give us everything that we need to endure. And the beautiful thing about it is that God revealed this most in the person and work of Jesus Christ, did he not? This literal embodiment of God's faithfulness and God's truth was sent from the realm of heaven to suffer and die on your behalf that you might become sons and daughters of God. Long ago, at the very beginning, when everything was plunged under the weight of sin and death and that great adversary of Satan, God promised to send forth one who would crush the head of the deceiver. All throughout the Old Testament, everybody's looking forward to that day he would come. They're waiting in eager anticipation, and he came. God proved faithful and true. And in that faithfulness and in that truthfulness, he came to take on human flesh live a perfect life of obedience to the will of the Father, die as the innocent one in our place to be our perfect substitute, and then raise from the dead. Again, all according to Scripture's promises. God was faithful and true. And if God did that, beloved, and promises that Jesus Christ will come yet again to redeem us and bring us into eternal life, will he not prove faithful and true yet again? And if that's the case, then why do you and I fret or why do you and I give in to these points in which we need to be able to respond biblically and well? I think it's a problem of perspective. But the idea is that we look back to God. We look back to the source from which faithfulness and truth come. He has accomplished everything he set out to do and he will accomplish it yet again in the very near future. He will indeed rescue his people. That is a promise that you and I can take to the bank. That at the end of all days, or even if you and I just simply don't make it there and it's at the end of our days, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, he will rescue us from every last trial, every last temptation, every last enemy. Next, our response ought to be that we see things as they truly are. Verse 4, he says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men, whose teeth and spears, or are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. And notice how in every single way he is quite frank about his enemies, isn't he? He's looking at these men and saying, they, they desire to devour me like lions. They are looking to kill me. Right? They also use their words to bring him down and slander him. And despite their goals to bite and devour him, David says, I must lay down among them. Now, there's two ways you can ultimately take that phrase. The first that some commentators will take it is that he's in lament. He's in the midst of his enemies and he's saying, I have to lay down among them. There's nowhere to lay my head, so to speak, right? And this would fit well given how hateful these men are. But given the entire tone of the psalm where it's actually quite encouraging and uplifting because he's focusing upon God as his strength and source of comfort and peace, I believe the second, which is the view I take, is actually the better one here, and that he's able to lay down among them. 
meaning he's at peace, even though everything is not peaceful. Even though everybody's trying to take his life, he is still at peace and able to go to bed, so to speak. It's here you find a man or a portrait of a man who has incredible faith. He can look at things. He can call a spade a spade. He can say, look, everything is bleak. Everything is hopeless. They're trying to kill me. And yet at the same time, he looks beyond the sun, so to speak, and sees that the one true, eternal, most high God is still his refuge and strength and cares for him. He sees all things, in other words, as they really are. And so our response in times of trouble ought to be much the same. We ought to be able to call a spade a spade, right? When things are hard, call it hard. When you're miserable, say you're miserable. You and I do no favors to anybody by pretending as if these things just don't happen. The reality is that they do happen. You live in a broken and fallen world. Right, as you're watching loved ones reject Christ and they do nothing but re- I mean, spew forth hatred towards you, you're right to be upset by that and mourn for them and to wish for better things for them. When you're watching someone descend towards death, either willingly or unwillingly, you're right to look at that and be angry. Death should not be. The pain and suffering of this life should not be. So you watch your country descend into perversion. Again, it's appropriate for you to be angry in a godly manner, in a righteous manner, but it's appropriate. And yet, despite all of these things, you can be at peace if God is your refuge. And that's the bigger point. Now, you can call a spade a spade all day long. You could be the person who turns everybody away because you're just quote-unquote truthful and people hate the truth. Or you can be the person who is a source of strength and comfort amidst times of suffering because your strength and refuge is in God. That's what David is doing here. In the midst of great evil, he's the one who is looking to his God and saying, he's my refuge. Nothing can affect that. And so for the Christian who looks upon God in the midst of the most evil days, what they will find is an endless stream of encouragement and peace and joy because despite how bleak things truly are around them, again, they are safe under the shelter of his wings. He is a God most high. He is our refuge. You have a hope that far surpasses whatever things can befall you in this life. Right? If, if Jesus Christ has taken away your sin and borne it away that you no longer face the very wrath of God that was reserved for you, a sinner, beloved, everything else in this life pales in comparison to that. The question is just, do we believe that? Do we believe that we truly have a hope that when this life is said and done, that we will go to be with Jesus in heaven? Do we look forward to that day? Do we eagerly anticipate that day among the brethren? Do we live our lives in reflection to that day coming? Right? We're going to order our lives in submission to the word of God that we might show others that we actually have this hope of that day to come. The question I ask is always, what else will bring you joy when you see the world dissipate underneath your feet? 
And they look at you and say, you have nothing to be joyful for because your life sucks. Beloved, if that is the case, we of all men are to be pitied. When you see things in their proper light, when you call a spade a spade, but you ultimately look to the one who is above it all, who is God himself, who is in control over the spade, so to speak, your peace is not found in the futility of anything and everything under the sun. It's found by looking above the sun to your God and then trusting him. He will make all things right as he has said. Now, we'll come back to verse 5 at the very end, but for now I want you to see verse 6, and that's the next response in the day of evil is that God will make all things right. He says, They have prepared a net for my steps. They're trying to trap me, kill me. My soul is bowed down low. They dug a pit before me. They have themselves fallen in the midst of it. Now, notice how it starts and how it ends, right? There are two different stories. He's saying, my enemies are laying a trap before me. It's taking a toll on his weary body, right? He is, his soul is literally bowed down in agony. He's distressed. He's humiliated. And then he looks and he sees that instead of him falling down the pit, they fall in their own pit that they laid. Rather, there's this poetic justice to it that happens, Right? God flips the tables, in essence, on these men, and they fall right into their own trap that they laid for him. It's much like Haman and Mordecai, if you remember the book of Esther, right? In the book of Esther, Haman goes to the king. He's got the gallows that he wants to hang Mordecai on. And what happens, but lo and behold, Haman gets hanged instead. Mordecai gets placed to the right hand of the king, and has to wear us. And there's this just wonderful bit of irony that you're looking at, and you're like, oh, that's good. Right? You can't help but appreciate that reality because what was evil was turned to good immediately without anybody doing anything. Right? God's sovereignty on display in his provision and care for his people. That's Esther. But it's much the same as what happened with Joseph when his brothers intended everything for evil. He says God intended it for good. Not that God worked your evil for good, but that what you intended for evil, what you fashioned and made plans for evil, God fashioned and made plans for good. One and the same. That evil, that good. One and the same action. But he says that as God took it and handled it, what he did was he literally made the substance of it good because it's bound in his nature. Who he is. But it displays ultimately when we look at all of these things and see that God will make things right is that there's ultimately justice that will be portrayed either in this life or the one to come, right? That's the reality of what's at hand. That happens at immediately or at the end of all days. And the simple truth remains that God will not let evil go unpunished, but simultaneously he is literally working all things for good for those who love Jesus Christ. One and the same. And so our response in times of trouble Again, is much the same as David, believe that God will make all things right. One of the great hopes of the Christian is that after this life is said and done, that no matter what toil and hardship and suffering we faced here, uh, persecution, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, look at Christians in places like Darfur, where they're literally getting their heads chopped off. Their hope in the midst of seeing their brothers and sisters executed is that God will repay the evildoer. God will make all things right. I need not worry. God will make justice happen. I can just simply be faithful. 
even if people escape justice in this life, they will never escape it in the life to come. That is one of the great hopes of the Christian. And knowing that God will take care of every bit of this frees you and I up to just simply be faithful to our obligation to obey God, to be a blessing to those who persecute us, to not return evil for evil, but entrust all things to the one who avenges us. What more do we look for than the return of Christ where he will actually come and do this? I mean, do you not see how at the same exact time there's still this reality where there is fierce judgment and wrath and yet there is salvation, right? There is two ends of the spectrum. For the unbeliever, it's a day of terror, but for the believer, it's a day of great salvation. It's a great thing of hope because you look at it and you go, that's my rescue. I'm done, I'm taken out. I'm not taken out in the hitman style way, right? You could take it that way. But I'm taken out. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more enemies. Everything's done. There's lasting freedom for those who wish to do us harm and for weapons of war. All the things that plague us in this life will be done. Sin will be no more. Death will be put to the lake of fire. Satan will be cast, no longer able to tempt and destroy In all of these things, we will look at it and say they have fallen into their own trap. And even though they planned evil for me, God intended every bit of it for good. Therefore, I will trust in him. So the question I ask is simply, do you see things this way for one? But for two, do you recognize that this is not yet our reality? So what do you do? Right, we have this tension. We know that this is a day coming where God's salvation will come. He will judge the wicked, that everything will be made right. And yet, over here, I don't have that. In fact, if I look at much of my life, not a lot of it's all that right. Well, verse 7, we see exactly what David does. He resolves to trust in God. He preaches to himself. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Right, Despite how bleak everything looks around him, he goes back to this place where he looks upon his God and his heart is unwavering. He is confident God will rescue him. The sole reason for it is he knows that God is faithful and true. And God has sent his faithfulness and his truth from heaven. God is his refuge. God is everything to him. What this means is that he's looking at his circumstances and he's looking at these men that want to kill him. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to let that affect my faith. That will not destroy my hope. I will remain faithful and true regardless of what happens. Why? Because God is faithful and true. God has always been loyal to me. And so David just simply resolves to trust in God and his word and to obey God and his word. Right? He has ample opportunity to lose heart. And yet he says, my heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. So this is exactly how I would recommend you respond on days of trouble. A while back, I preached on Psalms 42 and 43, and it's kind of the same idea there where the psalmist is separated from his people, he's under uh, captivity, and he's looking at just miserable times, and he's saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you in despair? Hope in God. Three separate times in those two psalms, they're short, but three separate times he rebukes himself and brings himself back to the truth. Why are you in despair? Hope in God. 
The reason why is he knew God. Not just in a personal level, but he knew his God. He was able to look at the word of God and see, this is the God who is my shelter from the storm. This is the God who is the God most high. This is a God who will rescue. And so when, when days arise that are evil, beloved, one of the best things you can do is give yourself over to, to regular self-counsel or preaching the truth to yourself, bound up in the faithfulness of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be in his word. If you're tossed to and fro by every trial, there's a reason for it. Whenever I look at somebody who's having a hard time, I always ask him the question, what's the well you draw from? And I don't ask it by way of rebuke, but I'm, I'm just digging to see, okay, what is it that you hope in? Is it God and his word? And my point in that is if you do not take up the word of God on the easier days, you will never do so on the hard days. The only reason why a Christian remains steadfast in the midst of suffering is simply because he is aware of who God is, he knows what God has done, and what God will do. In other words, he's a person who loves the Lord and his word. The only thing Matt and I do as pastors, week in and week out, is to take up the word and say, thus says the Lord. That's, we're convinced of that. That's what we try to do every single week of being able to show you. That's why we say, look down at your Bibles, because we don't want you to look at our faces and think this is where he gets it. We want you to look at the word. That's all we have for you. And I've sat down with people before, some of you in this room, and said in the midst of counseling, that's all I've got for you. And there have been plenty of people who say that's not enough. I've watched people leave this church who have said it's not enough because they just don't want it. When the day of trouble came, they wanted counsel. The word was opened up as the authority, and they would not heed it. They would not resolve the trust in God and in God's way because they figured, I've got a better way. It's easier. That doesn't work. As if God's way of doing things is something you try just because you think it quote-unquote works. God's way is often the harder way. It often means much more pain and struggle in your marriage, in your relationships, in your personal life. But it is the way that leads to life and blessing. It is the way that God has promised to bless over and again. And so the question I always ask is, what is the well you draw from? Will you resolve to trust God on the day the trouble comes? And if that's the case, why? If you can't answer why on the basis of the word, then, beloved, do you really trust him? Now, the simple reason David could even do that is because he delighted in God. Now, this is what I want you to see now in verses 7 through 8. This is our next response in the days of trouble. David set his lips to praise God and therefore... On the day of trouble, let your lips sing praises to God. In 7 and 8, he says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. So notice at this point, his confidence is in full swing, but he's actually so resolved that he trusts in God that he's commanding his soul, 
Awake, O sluggard, rise to the occasion and praise your maker for he is due the glory. And then he looks to the instruments and even the dawn itself and he says, rise from your slumber. Everything has been far too silent for far too long. Rise and praise the king. In every bit of it, he's looking at it and he's, looking, he's saying, raise to your occasion. This is what you were made for. This is your purpose of praise. Why? I mean, if you think about it, why? This guy must be crazy, right? He's in the midst of times where it's the worst days of his life. People are trying to kill him. And then he's like, you know what? I'm just going to sing super loud. <laughs> think about that, right? Why would he do that? God is worthy of praise on the good days and the bad days. In all the days of our lives, whether they're evil or good, and that's our principle. That's our response in the midst of suffering. I think about it even when you gather as a church. When we gather on any given Sunday, you find people in all sorts of different straits or all along a different spectrum, if you will. Some come at the very height of life. Others come in continually at the lowest point because they see things and they're like, it can't get much worse. And yet, when both of them can join together, and praise God, it is an incredibly precious thing. At the heart of praise is this recognition that whether in times of hardship, suffering, whatever you want to call it, or times of peace, God is worthy of praise. That you will still praise him on the day evil comes. That when your baby dies, when your spouse flees from you and cheats on you, when your family member is killing themselves, I will yet praise him, though he slay me. There's a reason why we come together and sing. And the reason for it is simple. When you sing, you are bringing truth to bear in a rather wonderful way that comes to bear like no other way in all creation. You proclaim the truth of God against the lies of this age. You shout your victory in Christ every single Sunday you come and sing. He has conquered sin, death, and Satan. You make melody with one another that God loves us and cares for us, that he is our refuge and he is our strength, ever present in our times of trouble. And when you lament and everybody joins in lament with you, you show yet that there is still a hope there is. We await the return of Christ when all is made right. And so together we will mourn, and yet we will mourn with hope. We will mourn even with joy, for we know that though the days are good and evil, that God has made them both for his own purposes, and he will swallow them up in victory in Jesus Christ. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this isn't bound to just one or two people. Notice in verses 9 through 10, he now takes this, and this is our next principle in times of trouble and how we respond, and proclaims God's grace to everyone. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why? For your loving kindness, your hesed, your faithfulness, and your truth. Go to the heavens and your truth to the clouds, right? The idea is that he's looking at all of creation and he's saying that every bit of it is filled with God's covenant kindness or faithfulness and his truth, his steadfastness. Typically, David would just go to the temple and be able to sing forth praises there, but he says, no, that's not good enough. I must go before the very nations and I must draw them to see the goodness and the graciousness of God. 
Right? God is not just good and gracious to Israel, but to every single person on the edge of the earth. So when he looks at it, he says, when, when God comes and saves me, I'm going to go and show the Gentiles just how gracious and how kind and how good and merciful this God is. Well, our response in much the same way is that we ought to be a people who are always giving the gospel, even in the midst of times of suffering. Well, think about when was the last time you contemplated if God ordained your suffering for that very purpose? That you might sing his praises and give him the glory, even in the midst of pain and trouble. That you might show others of the one who is merciful, the one who is savior, the one who is the shelter amidst the storm. Every time calamity happens, you and I have a rather wonderful opportunity to share the love of God in Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to show them what it looks like to trust God, how to remain faithful when the times are hard, because everybody has hard times. Everybody. Every single person will undergo trials. That's a guarantee of living in a world dominated by sin and futility. Every single last one of you will suffer. If you haven't heard that, welcome to the club, guys. Every last one will suffer. The question is, when you suffer, who will be your refuge or what will be your refuge? If we're in Christ, we have a radically different approach to this, don't we? We don't complain. We don't look at every single aspect of it and say that there is nothing to be hopeful for. Rather, we can show them at the end of the day no matter what gets stripped away from me, no matter who flees from me, no matter who soils my name, I still have Jesus. I still have my Savior. I still have a hope in the life to come. You can take everything. Just give me Jesus. God is faithful and true. And when we testify this most in giving the gospel, we are able to show people what it looks like to have a God who is faithful and true. And yet you are also going to be encouraged to the very same thing, beloved, because you are reminded that there is one who has come who has the power over sin, death, and Satan. Our next point, and this is really the dominating concern, this is why we would even share the gospel, was we're concerned with the glory of God. Verses 5 and 11. This is David's consuming focus here. It says, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above the earth. Now, if you remember, I spoke to this very briefly at the beginning, where I said this was a literary device used to show that these two things are unified, right? This is all of creation. He says, Let your glory be above all of creation. Let it be seen in every bit of it. And so he's literally driving this as the main point of his psalm. This is his burden. This is what he is passionate about. This is what he looks at and says, every bit of my life, every step along the way is just another means for God to get the glory. This is why I see him as my refuge and strength, because he is mighty to save. He glorifies himself in salvation. This is why on the day of calamity, I will trust in him. This is why... I will tell others of how good he is. God needs the glory. Everybody needs to see how glorious he is. 
And yet what ought not be missed is that even in the midst of this, he's actually asking God to show his full glory. It's not just that he's looking at it and saying, God deserves the glory, which he does. He's like, Lord, manifest your glory in the heavens and the earth. Show it in all creation. In other words, come, make all things right. He's asking that the Lord would bring forth his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? In David's day, he knows that the glory of God is just simply hovering between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And he looks at this and he says, no, all the earth, all the earth. And that is much the same hope that you and I have at the end of all days, is it not? Where we are looking for the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. David picks up the same thing in Psalm 22. He looks at the very end of it, and he's depicting the nations coming before this one who rules from the throne, bowing themselves before him, proclaiming the righteousness of Jesus to a people yet unborn, it even says. The the actual rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth is what I'm talking about. What he's anticipating is not simply that God would save him from his enemies. He's looking at things and he's saying that Yahweh will rule over all the earth. And when that happens, there is no more of this junk. God will get the full glory that he deserves. All will worship and bow down before the king who is worthy. This is why he had a burden to sing among the Gentiles, right? He's looking at it and saying, one day you guys will see this is all God's creation. Every last one will bow down and worship the one true God. And he says, God needs more glory. Therefore, I will praise him even to the Gentiles so that you may see he is loving kind, that he is merciful and gracious. And that ultimately is my final point to all of you today is that in the midst of times of trouble, our concern ought to be much the same thing, that God receive the glory he is due. Not simply by us abiding by it, but that we would be able to look at things and say, he needs more glory. And so the question is not really much of one of content, right? How do we glorify the God? We love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. First and second greatest commandments. These are things you all know, but the question is one of application. Well, how do you do that? If I were to try and sum it up, God has to be the one who is your all-consuming delight. God has to be the one you treasure. His word has to be the thing that you look at like nothing else in this life. You have to be able to look at every single day, both the good and the bad, as an opportunity to trust God by faith and bring him the glory and give him honor by your conduct. In very short form, it's that you live a gentle and peaceful life as a Christian in this world that's always tumultuous. For you young kids, you obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For you older saints, you continue to pour into the lives of the younger ones and show them the way that is right. You can show them the way of pain, too, and say, look, don't go there. I went there. You don't want to go there. 
But at the end of the day, what you're looking to do is simply provide an answer for the hope that is within you and point people in the same direction that they may together with unified, unified voice and song go the way of faithfulness to the king. It's radically simple. It's that ordinary living of faithfulness to your king. Things like preaching the gospel, taking care of babies, preaching against things that are evil, being able to show love and care towards somebody even when they don't care about you, praying for your enemies, blessing them, all those simple, ordinary ways of faithfulness. But beloved, none of you can do it apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And for some of you, this is literally where you need to start today because you have yet to do so. You have looked upon Christ and you have heard him from the very beginning and you do not come before him as your Lord and Savior. Cry out to him for grace. Start where David did. Come before God in recognition. You're a sinner. You deserve wrath. And yet God is gracious and kind. He is a shelter to me amidst the storm. He will send forth his faithfulness and his truth, ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because he loves me and he bled and died for me. He took my sins and gave me his righteousness. And if I believe upon his name, the scriptures declare, I shall be saved, not by my works, but by his works. For many others, though, this is where you must simply come back. And what I mean by that is radically simple yet again. Life has this way of just causing us to lose focus on everything, doesn't it? I know that times of trouble are hard. That's why they're called evil days, beloved. Every last one of you will suffer. But if you follow Jesus Christ today, it is not because you found somebody telling you that he will fix your marriage, that he will save your family and friends, that he will make everything right, he'll fill the bank account, and that all your problems will magically go away. You followed him because he is worthy. You followed him because by grace, through faith, you have salvation. That Jesus took your sins and you saw you were not the worthy one, but that he was. But that in his kindness, in his all-gloriousness, his way of salvation is such a benefit to you that you can truly say, along with David, I know that I'll be rescued. I know that even if everything is hard and horrible now, that one day it will not be. The troubles of this life will pass. Has he not shown himself to be a refuge and strength to you ever since that point? And so keep pressing forward and just simply resolve to trust him and make his glory your aim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a gracious God, that you are kind to us through the person of Jesus. Every last one of us, every single last one of us, is not worthy of your care. And yet you are merciful to us, not only that you 
will actually forgive us and take our sins from us by trusting in Jesus Christ, but that you care for us. You show your mercy to us each and every day. Even on those days that we fail to recognize it. Those simple, ordinary gifts that we take advantage of each and every day. And yet all the big ways that you have come through for us in our time of need. Hindsight is always perfect to where we can look back and see your hand and your kindness. But I pray for those struggling today that you would give them a mercy even still. Allow them to see it in the here and now. Let them look back on the days where you have always been there. You've always shown yourself to, to them as a kind and gracious God. But may they see your kindness and graciousness even now. Send everyone home safely. Let us be concerned about your glory. Let us evangelize the lost. And fill us with boldness that we might do these things and do them well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.